well thought out and well spoken, and I appreciate that message this morning. And uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Max Lopez. I'm honored to be a member here at Sunset, and I'm also a deacon of the Young Families Ministry here at, at Sunset as well. We're very lucky and blessed to have a very, very talented variety of speakers here at Sunset. And uh, we also have Jim, uh, who's also very talented. I, mean, I didn't mean to <laughs> do the slide on Jim. Um, but we're very lucky here, and, and I'm super incredibly excited and honored to um, be before you this morning to speak as well. And while this message this morning is very personal to me, I hope that you find this message insightful, um, meaningful, and a message that conveys something that's been on my heart uh, for many years, actually, but especially more so lately. So if you know our family, we've been through some mud recently in the last few years. One of the more difficult tragedies uh, we faced was when my brother Julian passed away in 2014. He was in a car accident. Uh, He got into a car accident on his birthday and died two weeks later. He was 23. And we are actually coming up now within a couple weeks on the five-year anniversary of his death. And it's amazing how crazy and fast time flies, but we're here. And his death still at times seems very unreal to me. It doesn't seem like it's real. But at the same time, five years later, I found an enormous amount of healing has taken place. And part of that healing involved a lot of self-reflection, trying to figure out what I was experiencing in my life that delayed that healing, that made that healing come later than it should have. And self-examination was the key. And self-examination is a ton of fun, isn't it? It requires really being honest with yourself. It requires a lot of questions and, and a lot of listening. And not just listening to other people, but listening to the things that I knew were right in my mind and in my heart. And more importantly, it required a whole lot of prayer. And it, it wasn't just my prayers that it required. It required uh, a lot of prayer uh, from a lot of you. And I truly believe that those prayers somehow led to that self-examination and to get to where I needed to be. So thank you very much from the bottom of my heart if I haven't told you already. But looking back on that time and throughout that time, I I realized that I was doing a lot of things that I later learned weren't really helpful in that healing process. And there were two things in particular that I wanted to discuss today. Two obstacles, I'm going to call them that created this immense gulf between where I was and where God was. And that gulf was so hard to overcome. And it was something that I think and truly believe was the primary cause of that delayed healing in my life. And interestingly enough, it's something that these two things are are things that people do struggle with, whether it's in good times or in the bad times. In their lives. So the first of these is pride. I don't know if you can see that. My font was very small, so I apologize. So pride is an interesting characteristic, right? And I have the definition up there, but if you can't see it, it says it's defined as a feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements or from qualities or possessions that are widely, widely admired. I mean, who doesn't take satisfaction or pleasure in their own achievements, right? Isn't it just about everyone 
filled with some kind of pride at some point in their lives. I wish you could have seen the sense of pride my wife Heather and I felt when our second child was finally out of diapers. <laughs> that was probably one of the most proud moments of our lives and, and very pleasing and created a lot of satisfaction. And that was obviously a joke, but I saw some of the parents over here of the younger kids kind of nod their heads in agreement because that's totally true. Yet Thomas Terrence, vice president of ministry at the C.S. Lewis Institute, says this about pride. What throughout history has been recognized as the deadliest of vices is now almost celebrated as a virtue in our culture. Pride and arrogance are conspicuous among the rich, the powerful, the successful, the famous, and celebrities of all sorts, and even some religious leaders. And it is also alive and well in ordinary people, including each of us. Yet few of us realize how dangerous it is to our souls and how greatly it hinders our intimacy with God and love for others. And C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin. He describes it as the complete anti-God state of mind. He goes on to say that pride is what made Satan become Satan, and that pride is the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Whoa. That'll put a damper on those feelings, huh, diaper mom and dad? What is it about pride that makes these scholars speak in such a negative way about it? Why is pride such a problem? Well, the first example we see of pride and arrogance is in Genesis 3. Starting at verse 3, it reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from themselves. So earlier we know God had given Adam and Eve some very, very strict boundaries in this garden, right? They even said so themselves in this passage. Yet the serpent, in its arrogance and its defiance, made two statements, false statements, that shaped the future of the entire human race. First, he calls God a liar in verse 4. He says, wait, God said what? <laughs> no way. Of course you won't die. Don't be silly, he says to Eve. Then, he took it a step further and, and again lied to Eve in the very next breath when he says, God just didn't want you to eat that fruit because he knew what would happen. You'll be just like him, knowing good and evil. Right? Has anyone seen the movie Inception? It's a great film. I'll, I'll just watch. It's, it's this guy, uh, Christopher Nolan, who wrote this film. He, he did some of the Batman movies, so I'll pretty much watch anything this guy puts out. And this film, I thought, was one of the more creative films that he made. And if you haven't seen it, 
This movie is about a guy named Cobb, who's up on the screen there, Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And he leads a team of specialists into pulling off this incredible heist. But they don't do it in a way that you think. They plant a seed of a thought into somebody's mind. They put it into the very, very deep subconscious of a person. Right? And this, this little idea, he says, and you can't really read the quote because it's kind of small, but he says, this little idea is like a virus. It's resilient. It's highly contagious. And even the smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define you or to destroy you. So in the Garden of Eden, the serpent pulled off the heist of all heists with Eve. And humanity's failure, humanity's inception of sin was at stake. And these words that the serpent planted in Eve's ear spread like a virus in a really, really bad way. They introduced a seed of doubt in her mind about God. They introduced a seed of unreliability from God, of God's truthfulness, no less. But it didn't stop there. The serpent doubled down on that lie. He misinformed God, Eve, about God's intentions. He lied and said that the reason that God forbade them was because of what God knew would happen. And was just missing out on being godlike, on having what God had. This undermined her confidence in God and gave her belief that she could simply do away with God and, cru- and destroy this crucial boundary that existed between her and God. She craved this wisdom because she knew what it would do based on the serpent's information. She wanted to be like God, knowing what good and evil had, and the, certain, the serpent had promised her that. So Eve, now ensnared and trapped by pride, was trapped. She disobeyed God and opted for a path of self-sustainment. She knew that she didn't need God anymore at that point. At least that's what she thought. A life and sensation where God was no longer necessary. And Satan, through this serpent, planting a little tiny seed in her mind, was able to use that little lie as a starting point of man's separation from God. Starting point for sin. Now keep in mind there's an important distinction to make when it comes to pride. Being proud or prideful about something isn't always a negative thing. So for instance, I take a lot of pride in my family. I take a lot of pride in my career, my church. I'm very proud of these things. They bring me a lot of honor. right? I even, I even find a little bit of my, my complex, my identity in a lot of those things. But the pride that ensnared Eve is so much different than that. And James gives us an example of what this pride looks like when he says in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 of his text. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The temptation to fall by this type of pride knocks when it's driven by our own evil desires. And in verse 15, he remarkably prophesies about this idea that inception was based on. But also, he describes a conception of sin. 
right? Of these feelings and where they ultimately lead in somebody's mind. And that's exactly what happened to Eve in her story. She wanted what no one else had. She wanted what God had. And we know what the result is. Pain, curses, struggles. The kinds that God nor humanity would have ever thought of when God created the garden. Right? God intended for this garden to be a harmonious environment for him and his creation. Yet, Eve was tempted. Eve's pride got into the way of that. And as we face difficulties in life, this separation from God could be catastrophic in terms of our relationship with God. This kind of pride that Eve was trapped in not only creates separation between us and God, but it's the kind that makes that distorts the picture of the relationship between the person and God. The person becomes like this, and God becomes like this. It, it perpetuates this distorted vision of what we have about God. It starts to make us think that we no longer need God. We start exalting ourselves instead of exalting God. We believe this lie that our pride is what's going to help us overcome. But this pride ends up leading where Eve landed. right? A place where we feel God is no longer necessary. And unfortunately, there's been a huge cultural shift in this direction. Our world demands that we be self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-centered. Meet your desires first, then worry about everyone else later. Be able to take care of yourself. So when we face difficult times in our life and this pride comes knocking at our door, our natural inclination is to self-defend. Hide the pain from others to avoid showing weakness. And in your place of pain, exhibit strength, self-help, self-sustainability, and that kind of behavior to show people that you can handle your issues on your own without anyone else's help or input. Eve's story of pride is extreme. But if we are harnessing that mindset of self if we're putting ourselves in that place instead of God, if we're putting ourselves in the middle of our darkest moments and not bringing God with us, how are we any different than Eve in that scenario? How are we not taking that promise, that lie, and taking a bite from it because we think that there's some kind of promise in the end? How are we any different? We believe about a lie in ourselves, that we convince ourselves that we no longer need God. And that's what happened to Eve. And that's what happens to us when we fall into pride. We no longer need God. We no longer need His body. We no longer need His church. But the only distinction that I can make between our story when we fall into those traps and Eve's story is that when we take that position, we are the ones that banish ourselves from God's presence. We suffer from our own mistake. We miss out on what God has to offer us in these situations. The second of these obstacles is fear. I have not done a ton of research on this, but I believe the internet. Fears that we are born with include fear of falling and fear of loud noises. Most other fears are learned. Some of the fears we have are natural, right? Some things we're predisposed to fear. 
And a couple of these examples are on the screen. Snakes, they look dangerous, right? The spider with a big red mark on his back, that can't be good. And some of these natural fears are a product of our environment, right? We're influenced by our environment and our culture. So a baby isn't necessarily automatically afraid of monsters or spiders, but as we grow up through our experiences, we pick up cues and we are able to translate that thing that's on the screen to, oh, no, we, we got to stay away from that thing, right? And as we get older, we're able to make, to make a quicker association with these fears, right? And, and you can think of the example of Halloween decoration, now that we have Halloween coming up. Uh, a kid probably doesn't know that a Halloween decoration is scary until the parents start saying, oh, look at that thing, that's really scary, isn't it, Jay? Well, that's really scary, right? So as we grow up, our fears as adults are categorized into four categories. And again, I apologize for the, for the font. The first one is fear of loss. This can take many forms. Fear of losing your job, losing your children, your keys, and oh my goodness, please, 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 don't let me lose my phone. Another form that I'll touch on later is fear of losing control, right? If this person can't keep tabs on everything and anything, their entire world will collapse, right? The second is fear of failure, which is pretty self-explanatory. Same for the fear of rejection. And then the last is the fear of the unknown. This is dreading of not knowing what lies ahead, fearing the absolute worst. And these are typically, typically things that we worry over that we just simply can't control. I like to call them the random things of life, the things that just happen. In Eve's story, interestingly enough, Adam and Eve both experienced fear, in addition to shame, right after their disobedience. Right? Adam admitted as much to God. But up to that point, when Adam admitted his fear, the only thing that God had asked of Adam and Eve was, where are you? Where did you go? Why are you not where I put you? God hadn't dished out his punishment yet at that point. So this fear was a purely human emotion that Adam and Eve felt as a result of their sin. It wasn't something that God brought about. In fact, if you flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, he tells us that fear is not an emotion that God gives us. For the Spirit of God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So why on earth do we find ourselves so consumed with fear when it's clear that God has actually given us the complete opposite? Power, love, and self-discipline. And the answer, again, lies with the serpent. Satan created fear. Satan uses fear as a mechanism that translates to doubt. And this is the wildfire I realized many years later that spread in my heart and mind when I realized that my brother was in critical condition after his accident. I felt an incredible amount of fear. Not a fear of him dying because at that point it was almost inevitable. We knew it was going to happen. But it created a fear in what his death would do to my faith in God. I was very afraid 
of what the unexpected outcome would do to my relationship with God if I decided to put my trust in God and God let me down. Satan planted that seed in my head and it spread to create an enormous amount of doubt that I felt in every day. It wasn't until much later, last year actually, when we were doing a study, that I realized how these thoughts manifested themselves in me. In our young families class that we do every Sunday morning, we were going through a study called Soul Detox, and it was just about that. Right? It was about identifying and detoxifying our bodies from evil things, toxic things, thoughts, toxic relationships, words, emotions, bitterness. And one of the chapters was about fear. And so the author posed this question where he says, is fear a lack of faith? Before I could even read the next line, me, Mr. Know-it-all, answered it all by myself. Of course. Duh. How is it not? But as I continue reading, he said this. Fear actually relies on faith. It's simply faith in the wrong things. Fear is facing, is placing your belief and your faith in the what-ifs rather than God is. It's allowing your imagination to wander down a long, dark alley of possibilities and then getting mugged every couple of steps. Duh. He gave Moses an example of this mindset. If you recall, Moses was given a very important job. God gave Moses a very detailed plan to deliver his people out of, from out of slavery. And he chose to do this how? Through a burning bush. Right? That'll get people's attention. An important part of the story, though, is that God tells Moses that he'll do the dirty work. God will be behind the whole operation. But if you look at Exodus chapter 4, we'll see how Moses responds to this. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Moses takes God's elaborate, detailed plan that he put on a silver platter and dumped it over the table. What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? How familiar is that to us? Goodness, that was me in my worst moments. What if this happens? What am I going to do? What if God doesn't deliver what we're asking for in difficult times? What if he doesn't answer a prayer? What if? Moses' doubt is the same doubt that we often face during our, the dark times in our lives. Rather than trusting God, we create a list of what-ifs. These what-ifs do have some value, however. They can help us identify what we value most in our lives. For example, if we worry about losing our jobs, we can see that we place a high value on financial stability and well-being. If we worry about getting sick, we know that we place a high value on our health and our well-being. If we worry about our children, we know that we're placing high value on them. The list goes on and on, but you can see the correlation between what you worry about 
and what you value. And an important distinction to make is that warring is not necessarily a terrible thing. None of these things are bad things on which you should put value on, right? Nobody's going to blame you if you care about your kids. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to blame you if you care about your financial ability to pay your bills and put food on your table. But if we're worrying about these things in a persistent, fearful way, that is an indicator that you're not putting your dependence on God to handle them. In other words, what we fear most reveals where we trust God the least. So turning to the practical part of the sermon, the application part, we have pride and fear. <clears throat> At first thought, pride and fear appear to be very personal emotions, right? Deeply rooted, profound feelings that we get. And because of this, we can often misinterpret those feelings as self-inflicted or self-induced. But if there's one important thing that you remember from today's sermon... If you remember anything at all from this message, is that you remember that none of those feelings come or arise or otherwise originate from you. You don't create pride. You don't create fear. You were created in God's image. God didn't create those things. We saw Satan work his dark magic on Eve. We saw him create pride in Eve through his lies. And Timothy tells us flat out, that God does not create fear in us. So to combat these things, I have a couple of suggestions to you based on my experiences. If you're in a dark spot, don't let pride take over. Let humility sink in. Wear your weakness like a badge of honor. It's in that weakness that you'll find God's strength. Thomas Terence, who we talked about earlier, says this about humility. Humility and humbling oneself is out of fashion in today's world and seems unappealing to most of us. <clears throat> However, we must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. Our perspective on humility can be radically changed if we ponder and meditate on the greatest example of humility in history, Jesus by the very act of leaving heaven, coming to earth, and taking the form of man, he demonstrated an unfathomable humbling of himself. Throughout his life on earth, Jesus demonstrated a spirit of profound humility, saying that he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ is a humility of God embodied in human nature, the eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness, and gentleness to win and serve and save us. The first few weeks after my brother passed away, I felt like I was the glue keeping my mom together in one piece. I felt if I showed weakness, I would crush her into a deeper depression. <clears throat> I felt like I had to keep myself afloat for my family's sake. I didn't want to rely on anyone but myself. I was adamant about not asking for help. Worst of all, I felt like what Eve must have felt like when she found out what the fruit would give her. I felt like I could simply replace God with what God wanted for me with myself. 
I took God's place in my mind. I individually did. And in my heart. My pride is what stopped me from healing and helping my mom heal. I also remember after a few weeks being away from church. The first Sunday back, after I felt like I could barely, t- I could barely talk out of fear of showing some kind of weakness. I did my very best to stand firm on my own island that entire Sunday, and I'll never forget it. But when we left service that day, <clears throat> I had my very first ever nervous breakdown. I pulled the car over, and I could barely breathe. And poor Heather. I dumped it all on her. She must have thought I was possessed, because if you know me, I'm pretty even keel through most things. But that was probably the most suffocating feeling I've ever felt in my life. After that breakdown, I realized I couldn't hold my emotions in anymore. I could no longer survive emotionally if I continued to allow my pride, my sense of self-defense, to consume me. I could no longer afford to keep shoving God aside and putting myself on on the pedestal. I needed to put my pride aside and show my weakness to those around me, to my family, to my church family, to God more importantly, to allow God's love and mercy to work in me, to allow that healing to begin. I needed to follow Jesus' example of humility in order to fully experience him. I needed to become vulnerable to stand a chance at overcoming what I was going through. And after I realized this, I felt so much different. I had such an easier time talking about it. The relief I felt inside was inexplicable. And I know deep down that it was God that was working that entire time because He was working through everyone here at sunset. The kind words, the encouragement, the love, the hugs... All of it contributed to demonstrating what God had in mind for me from the beginning. So thank you. If you're in that dark spot, find the light. Immerse yourself in God. Dive into Scripture. Pray. Not just by yourself, but pray with brothers and sisters. They will be in the direction in which you will find God's light in those dark moments. And by taking those steps, you'll be able to close that gap that I experienced. And you'll keep it closed. They will help you reignite that fire in your soul for God. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7 through says this. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. Walk in the light. Find the light in your dark times. And if you're lucky enough to not be facing difficult times at a point in your life, be available. Be ready to be that source of light for someone else. 
Focus some of your time, your energy, and efforts on those that are hurting, that are experiencing heartache, that are facing struggles. So focus your time and energy on those that may not know where to turn or simply know that they even need the help. That's where I was. They may not even be aware they have someone to turn to. Be that light for somebody. And if you feel fear creeping in during these hard times, acknowledge it and identify it. Once you identify that fear, the source of that fear, surrender it to God. Commit to trusting Him to give you the power and the confidence to overcome that fear. And this is different than just simply carte blanche giving it to God and pretending it's not a problem anymore. It's not what I mean. Instead, you must, again, make yourself vulnerable in those moments of fear. Allow God to take control of that situation and acknowledge that situation each time it arises and give it to God each time as well. Let God come into your life, into your mind, into your heart to give you that strength, that wisdom, and that courage in defeating your fear once and for all. He may not do it to you in a dream, but He may do it to the person, through the person that's sitting next to you. If you're having a hard time surrendering that fear, that's a telltale sign that your pride's getting in the way. And I'll close with this. David's story is an amazing example of this. King Saul threatened to kill him. And he made good on that threat by sending an army his way. Think of the president of a very large, powerful country sending his entire military to find you and kill you. It's terrifying. Isn't that just the thought of it? It's terrifying. But during this time, and despite having all the reason in the world to fear, not only the situation, but the outcome, David's poem to God in Psalm 56 is something to be admired. And he says in 1 through 4, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? It's okay to be afraid. But let David's response to fear be an example of how we turn to God. No questions asked. Because God will be there every time. When you feel fear, the response should be to run to Jesus. Not question whether you should go there, but to run, dive in, immerse yourself. Acknowledge that fear and choose to trust God to help you with managing those fears and relieving you of their doubts. That's what he's there for. This morning, Jeff did a... We're doing a story on busyness. And he, he brought up something so silly, but it's so true. Sometimes we feel guilty to approach God with our silly problems. Jeff said something along the lines of there's 25 zeros behind the amount of stars 
in the, in the galaxy. 25, or multiplied by 25 zeros, I should say. Trillions and trillions, and he created every one. Why would God want to listen to my little old problem? Because he loves you. Because he gave his son for you. That sacrifice that God made was for you. Communicate those fears to God, to your brothers and sisters to help you out in those situations. Don't feel like you're alone in those situations because you're not. Help yourself by allowing others to help you and take that weight off your shoulders, whatever it is. If there's anything that you're struggling with that you would like us to pray for, or if you've made a decision to give your life to God this morning, to walk in His light, even in your darkest moments, I invite you to come forward this morning to share that with us, with the elder that's going to come forward as we stand and sing. When the Savior